Disrupting Japan, Episode 68. Welcome to Disrupting Japan. Straight talk from the CEOs breaking into Japan. I'm Tim Romero, and thanks for listening. Today, we once again turn our attention to ride sharing. But surprisingly, we won't be talking about Uber. At least, not very much. No, no. Today, we get a chance to sit down and talk with my old friend, Yo Umizawa. Who is responsible for Halo's market entry? Now, listeners not familiar with Halo, let me explain. Halo is, in a way, Uber's quiet and somewhat neglected little brother. Halo did not make the same impact as Uber worldwide because they followed a very different strategy. While Uber vowed to disrupt transportation by taking on all comers, both government and industry, Halo had a different approach. Halo wanted to work within the system. They wanted to design a platform that was completely legal and that would make life better for all stakeholders, including the governments and taxicab companies. In fact, their model involved working with taxi companies directly. This was very much a battle between Uber's disruptive innovation versus Halo's sustaining incremental innovation. And on the global battlefield, Uber won. Uber is the world's most valuable startup and is still growing fast. While Halo ran into a cash crunch in 2016 and was acquired, for quite a healthy sum, mind you, and it's still very much an ongoing concern. In Japan, however, Halo won. Halo's sustaining innovation soundly trounced Uber's disruptive innovation. And Halo remains significantly larger than Uber in Japan. Of course, as you probably suspect, both companies had very different strategies in Japan than they did the rest of the world. But Ryo tells that story much better than I can. So let's hear from our sponsor and get right to the interview. Kotowork is doing something pretty cool. It's a community of Japanese language students who want to work at Japanese companies with global ambitions. Kotowork also trains them in business culture, Japanese hospitality, and a bit of global marketing. And since it's a real community, Kotowork is always there for both candidates and companies to solve cultural misunderstandings and the hundreds of other little problems that can come up when foreigners work for a Japanese company. Kotowork has a wonderful, long term, community based approach to making sure everything runs smoothly, and you should really check them out at Kotowork with a C. JP. Or come to their launch party on January 21st. You can find the details at the site. Your journey to success in Japan will involve some twists and turns. In trying to navigate new terrain, planning the safest, most effective way through on your own can be overwhelming. The Carter Group have been using market intelligence and research to guide Japan entrants for decades. They've honed an agile, cost effective, but consultative approach that will help you find the perfect product market fit, explore user and consumer dynamics, and act as an honest broker to let you know the reputation and track record of potential partners here in Japan. And when you're ready to go, their executive search team can also help you hire the right people to drive your business forward. So if you haven't got Japan completely figured out yet, the Carter Group can help you out. I'm sitting here with Yo Umizawa, the former country manager of Halo. 
You've since moved on from Halo, but we're going to back up a couple of years mm -hmm. because I think your experience with with Halo is something that a lot of people who are coming into Japan now can learn a lot from. Well, thanks for sitting down with us. Thanks for inviting me to speak. Halo is very popular in Europe and uh, it made a good run in Japan. Mm -hmm. But I think a lot of people in the US aren't familiar with it. So can you ex just give a brief overview of what it does? Okay, sure. Halo is a British company um, started up in London in 2012. It's a smartphone e-hailing app. So we basically connect drivers and users who want to ride a taxi through the app. And we also help drivers basically raise revenue by utilizing our unique algorithm to efficiently connect users to the driver. And then for the consumer side of experience, we help them hail the taxis very easily. Okay. So it sounds very much like Uber, mm -hmm. but with with one important difference, right? You guys were dealing with actual cab companies? Yes. So we only work with licensed taxis. So for example, in London, it's a black cab. Actually, uh, there are six founders in the company. Three of them are uh, black cab London taxi drivers. So they wanted to create, of course, more revenue while driving around and create efficiency uh, doing their job because time is limited. So... Back in 2013, I believe, is when mm -hmm. they came into Japan, right? Sure. What was Halo's main motivation for coming to Japan? What did they see in the market? So actually, I'm the second president for Japan. So there was a predecessor before me. Basically, Japan, in a yearly, there is about 1.8 trillion yen uh, market size. This includes taxi and private hired vehicle. But in Japan, taxis, basically taxi company owns most of the private hire vehicles. That's why the market basically size is and 1.8 trillion yen, as big as the entire Europe uh, market put together. Right. So it's a very big market and it's actually twice or three times bigger than the New York taxi market. Okay. So it was simply the size of the market. They knew they had to be there. It wasn't a particular trigger event. Yes. And also in addition, we Halo uh, tends to focus on market that has high number of concentrated taxi in an area. And then in addition, also the average fare is higher than um, other cities is where we look at. That makes sense. How did you structure the market entry? Was it a wholly owned subsidiary? Did you set up a joint venture? So in the beginning, uh, when they came in with a predecessor, it came in as a 100% subsidiary. So it was wholly owned subsidiary of the UK headquarters. But when I was taking over, as a new country manager's vice president, we had a lot of difficulties acquiring new drivers because the penetration of the smartphone, where our business was, uh, it launched in Osaka in the beginning. Uh -huh. The penetration for the smartphone for drivers was about 10% because the average driver age was about 50 years old. So by looking at all these data and then looking at the speed of the acquisition of drivers, I was thinking that we need a Japanese a local name that can kind of vouch for us in order to um, create our brand as well as get trust because trust is very important. And right. uh, when foreign companies comes in, at some cases or some industry, people see it as a black ship coming in just like in a wartime. So my strategy was to basically change the black ship to either gray or white <laughs> by uh, <clears throat> raising money from a conglomerate um, the company called Hikari Tsushin, mm -hmm. 
No, they've, we've kind of formed a type of a joint venture. So Hikari Sushi invested in the subsidiary or you created a new entity for them? Uh, we created a new entity for them okay. that we can uh, jointly put money in. And what was the split? Was it how much did Hikari Tsushin own? How much did the parent company control? Uh, I can't disclose the numbers, but uh, we had the majority of the shares. Meaning Halo? Yes, Halo. Okay. Halo had the majority of shares. Actually, before we get into some of the marketing techniques you used and how you built up that trust that you said is so important, I'm going to take a quick step back. You made some big changes to Halo when you came on as Japan's CEO. What was the, the reason for the change? Most of it was that we weren't seeing the growth uh, that HQ projected or predicted in the beginning. And also, you know, our business is all about platform, so matching drivers and uh, users. And it's always chicken or egg in this kind of platform businesses. You might have at a certain point of time more taxi than users or more users than taxis. But in this business, I, I thought having more taxis was more important because the user acquisition could be done online, but all the taxi acquisitions are done offline. Well, yeah. Also, since you're working with the taxi companies, mm -hmm. you can do one deal with a company and get a few hundred taxis mm -hmm. on the service. Sure. Okay, so to set the scene, how big was your team at that time when you were just taking over? When I took over, I think the team was about 10, 12 people. So not, not small for a new company coming in. Yes. Did you make changes to the team as well, or did you make just strategic changes when you came in? Yeah, I made changes to the team and the strategy. We weren't doing that many of um, rides a day, but we had actually full customer support. <laughs> and, um, well, customer support is important in Japan. Sure, but you know, back then we, you know, we would have one customer support for you know few rides. Of course, I think they were looking at the scalability, but the service works. Uh, the service started in London in 2012. We are in Dublin, Spain, Singapore, and we even had a U.S. operation. Like we were operation in New York, right. and it was proven that this really works. Of course, customer is thought as kings in Japan, but in the beginning, I, I'm more of a startup guy. So, you know, I'm happy to pick up calls from customers. And I was actually picking up calls from drivers as well, because I want to know what's really going on and what are their concerns are, rather than hearing it from, you know, customer support. Of course, you know, they'll be, they'll probably have a better voice and better service than I do. But as a, you know, market entry in Japan, and it's, I, I just thought it's better as a lean startup to kind of, have more you know well, and flexibility I'm sure, and i'm sure the fact that they are talking to the japan ceo mm -hmm. carries a lot more weight even if you're not doing support perfectly correctly right mm -hmm. knowing they have that attention i'm sure is far more valuable to them sure what sort of changes did you make how did you go about acquiring both the supply side acquiring those those taxis and on the demand side acquiring users so uh, originally, our operation was based in Osaka. You know, I was going there pretty often times and actually doing the sales work myself to really learn about, you know, what their requirements are. And in the taxi industry, you have a lot of conglomerates as well as um, second generation, third generation, son or daughter taking over as a CEO. Mm -hmm. And they do have libraries from centuries before. 
So trying to get into the middle and really hearing them out and trying to fix this problem is something I've been doing hands-on, which is very important because this business is very local and it's all about like kind of relationship and trust building. So myself actually traveling down from Tokyo and really meeting them and spending a lot of time and really trying to figure out what our best routes are was enjoyable. Let's talk about the trust building because you've mentioned that a couple of times Mm -hmm. already. And I mean, I know it's an incredibly important step of building up any kind of customer base in Japan. Mm -hmm. So trust is important in America too. It's it's important in any any business you do. But were there things that you had to do in Japan to build this trust that were different from what was going on in the States or, or England, for example? So uh, Japan has the word called nomination, yeah. which is drinking and communication. <laughs> Practically, you always think that you can get business done by in the meeting room and giving away the terms and the contract is there. And when, it, when I compare, generally, the U.S. contract seems to be a lot longer than the Japanese contract. Oh, yes. And it's all specified. So or whatever is written on the U.S. contract is as it is. But in Japan, some is set as very vague because you do have this trust and relationship that you're basically, you know, you don't need to write down small details because it could be discussed or it already has been discussed. And so I, I think this, uh, when foreign companies come in or even myself, like going to a new district like Osaka, where I'm not um, raised from, you know, I would need to tell them who I am, where, how my, my thinking is, you know, hang out with them, eat lunch, dinner, or, you know, hang out with their family and really understand, like, in, in terms of when problem or crisis happens, that, you know, you could be called up anytime and be reached and really understand how to really solve the problem. Because Japan tends to be in terms of making deal or partnership. Once you're in, you're in it for, you know, for life. There's a big switching cost, I believe, in terms of doing business for Japan. I think that's the flip side of the long sales cycle. So mm-hmm. it takes a long time to make that first sale in Japan. But customers are much more loyal. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it's just as hard for them to decide to move away from you and get a new vendor sure. as it was for them to decide to move away from their last vendor and use you. Because I think once there's a problem, the first thing they'll come up to mind is not about switching. It's about how to fix a problem. Yeah. And for example, like Toyota, they have their Kaizen style, like always edit, improve. And that's like the mindset that has been around and taxi industry is pretty old. So this kind of relationship building was a very important part of the business. So you've worked in quite a few different businesses as well. Mm -hmm. Do you find that this this importance of personal trust and vagueness is stronger when you're working with traditional industries than when you're working with more, say, high-tech industries? Uh, I think the basis is about the same. But it's a lot stronger working with a traditional industry. You know, it was actually my first time to experience, so I didn't know what was left and right, but I was just uh, trying to learn and asking a lot of questions and hearing them out. And in a way, I was a bit unique in the industry because I was raised abroad and at times uh, pretended to be like a foreigner and be ignorant of their, their kind of request. 
and just pretending that I don't understand it when I actually knew about it. That, that's, uh, <laughs> I, I can tell you from my own experience, that's an incredibly useful technique. Mm -hmm. Just saying, I don't really understand this. Can you explain it to me? Mm -hmm. And people are very helpful and they will. I, I mean, and at times, you know, people expect you to kind of show but don't tell kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Like they expect you to understand it. So once you ask them to explain in details, they'll be like, oh, it's okay. Never mind. Because they don't really want to explain that portion in details and they want, they don't want to be held uh, accountable for it. Did you have to change the, the product coming into Japan? So for example, the, the taxi industry in London is very, very different from the taxi industry in Osaka. Were there changes you had to make to the product? Uh, yeah, of course. So, I mean, prices are different. There's, you know, highway tolls and then, Actually, what we were one of the unique cities where we were accepting cash. For example, in other cities, we usually ask people to register credit cards. But in Japan, and especially in Osaka, as a very cash-oriented city, there's still many restaurants and many, I don't know, wherever you go, like some places, you they don't accept credit card. Right. So this was one of the things that needed to be implemented on receiving cash. And, and did you make that decision based on feedback from the taxi companies or from the users or from market research? Uh, I think um, all, all of it. All of the above? Yeah. <laughs> all of the above. <laughs> so it was a pretty clear decision you had to do this. You know, when we're a global company, you know, we have to think global, but act local and always customize to its needs. Otherwise, it's, uh, there won't be penetration in the market as well as we'll be seen as black shit. Because they'll be like, oh, you know, they just want to push their own style because maybe it works overseas. Whereas if we're really adapting and you know, we're talking to the players, they want us to customize to their needs and they'll be, they'll feel special because we could say, hey, we're a global company, but just for the Osaka version, we have these changes just for you guys. From my own experience, a lot of times in cl Japanese clients and partners are asking for customizations. They're really asking for a kind of confirmation that you take them seriously. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, you know, there are some things that, you know, they line up saying, okay, I need A, B, C, D, E, F, G in order to, you know, sign the contract. And once they sign the contract, they don't follow up on maybe D to G because they were probably just testing how committed we are and how much steps we're willing to take just to partner up with them. And also they know if it becomes important in the future, they can push you then. Sure. Well, let me ask you, why Osaka? Actually, this was a decision made by the predecessor. But uh -huh. uh, actually, there has been many cases recently uh, that foreign companies start in Osaka because it's more concentrated and it's more controllable. And some, some does it in Nagoya as well. For example, if we were to do it in Tokyo, we have to have a big coverage. So if you can, if you write in point A, you could end up like taking the customer to maybe 15 kilometers away. Okay. Whereas if it's Osaka, you have the, the north side and the south side. It's really like these main roads that surrounds it within the city. And uh, it's more controllable. And it, it was good for our initial case study. I see. So by, by focusing on Osaka, it was a, a risk control measure. It enables you to come into a still big and viable market with much less capital, fewer taxi companies on board to, to cover that market. Mm -hmm. And it could, 
work as kind of R&D in the beginning. Sure, because that's going to, when you'd make the next move to Tokyo, mm -hmm. uh, you would have a whole list of Japanese clients and proof that it works in Japan. Mm -hmm. That's really interesting. Almost everybody enters in Tokyo. Mm -hmm. So you were mentioning other companies were coming in through Nagoya, for example. What type of companies is this strategy really good for, do you think? I think it could, you know, work for like us, like for example, transport businesses mm -hmm. or even for corporate enterprise systems for uh, SMEs as well. Uh, because if it's Tokyo, you know, you have to go one by one uh, or use agency and etc. But when you're on the maybe like second or third largest cities, uh, the community is a lot smaller. So if you have this one company track record, they'll be willing to kind of introduce you to their friends and companies. Whereas in Tokyo, it's more business-like for some industry where they're like, oh, you know, you can go to this one, you can go to this one. Right. You can go to the associate, the trade association with the 20 different members. And Interesting. I could also see it would be, it'd be very advantageous for any company that has um, physical plant. Their employees scale linearly with the market or uh, in your case, you needed cars signed up. What are, what are some of the things you tried to generate the demand? So on the, on the supply side, mm -hmm. the taxis, mm -hmm. was it really just a matter of going out drinking, building some trust, and rationally explaining the value proposition? Well, it was also like explaining about, uh, well, having our investor, the conglomerate, we were getting seconded. Um, their employees was being seconded to really go after a lot of taxi companies. So we were being approaching to the executive of taxi companies, also as well as the driver itself. So the drivers would have like weekend events, uh, corporate events that we would um, show up and sometimes uh, sponsor some of it in order to really mingle. And then as well as the penetration I mentioned previously that the smartphone penetration is about 10%. So 90% of the consumers were having mobile phones, the feature phones. So the flip phones. Yes, flip phones. So we were creating incentives in order to swap from feature phone to smartphone by doing a cashback campaign, uh, lessons. Some of the drivers was grandparents. We were pitching like if you got a smartphone, you could watch kind of YouTube anime together with your grandson. <laughs> so these were kind of initiatives. Um, it not only the relationship side, but uh, using making use of agencies, partners, as well as our investors to really go out there and pitch to each drivers as well. And and for our listeners overseas, Hikari Sushin is one of the largest, if not the largest, independent retailer of mobile phones and mobile phone subscriptions. Mm -hmm. They're so, the number one reseller for iPhones in Japan. Are they? Yeah. Okay. And so it makes sense that they would go out, they really dedicated their sales force to going out and talking to the taxi companies and convincing the drivers to sign up for these discounted smartphone plans. I think Japan was one of the unique cities where the smartphone penetration was very low. The penetration of smartphone in Japan is pretty high, but then just for drivers, because coming from age, I mean... Yeah, that makes sense. Because there's still a whole lot of flip phones sold in Japan. Mm -hmm. And it is mostly to older people. Mm -hmm. Okay, so on the demand side, what were the, some of the things you did to get users aware of Halo? 
So we've had a lot of um, partnerships and campaigns that we've had. So we were having a partnership with uh, rental parking spaces. So if you were to park in a hotel for maybe the whole day, it's going to be a tremendously expensive bill. But if you own um, a house in a parking spot, and if you're going to the office and you don't use it for the daytime, you could be actually renting that space uh, for a lot cheaper. So for consumers that rent a parking space, they would need a taxi in order to go somewhere. So okay. that was one of the partnership because even though they take, took a taxi to the destination closest to the parking space, they'll still save up money rather than parking in a very expensive place. Right. Uh, we've had partnership with hotels where they would, because we're a global app, we would allow people to use it in English or Spanish or um, other languages. And it's the same app. You open it anywhere. You are able to call the local taxis out there. So we had a partnership with um, uh, hotels to accommodate people to actually use the app in their own language. Actually, one of the most successful promotion was handing out tissue papers. So in Japan... That's really old, Scott. <laughs> that's old school. That's... All right. <laughs> it's old school, but it was really targeted. So for example, when, you, when people miss the last trains... People have to take a cab home. I, the last train in Japan is about like 1 a.m. or midnight in some certain places. There's a long queue of taxis. So what we would do is give out tissue to the people who's waiting in line. And we tell them, you don't have to wait in line anymore. You could also advance book taxis. Oh, um, and we, okay. would, we were actually asking the drivers to give away tissue papers as well. Because they've already ridden the taxi. Perhaps not through us. Because we're using uh, taxis that's also running around. But I, I love that idea of, of going up to the people who are waiting in line because once someone uses it once, mm -hmm. that's the hurdle, right? Yes. They're, they're much more likely to continue to use it once they've put in their information and hit that button and had a good experience. You know that there could, there could be uh, you know, a potential user. I mean, obviously, because they're waiting for the cab. <laughs> Maybe it's you know, not so often times that they miss the last train, but I'm sure at certain point in time, they'll feel, oh, I should use that app because I don't have to wait in line anymore. One thing I find just really interesting about your approach is that I think most people looking at this application would assume that the best strategy is to pursue online methods, mm -hmm. right? Really scalable. But your strategy seems to have been built primarily around partners mm -hmm. and partnerships. I have an online marketing background and done online marketing as well. But just by looking at the numbers, what was most effective and cost-efficient way for taxi business was happened to be just offline. And so, you know, people was really surprised. Like, you know, what's your CPA for Facebook ads? What's your CPA for Google ads? And we're like, I think what you want to do is give away tissue paper <laughs> because that's really effective. And, you know, when I was explaining this to the people, guys in London, they're like, are you sure? <laughs> and I was like, please look at the numbers, look at this and that. And, you know, if you look at these demands that came in, you know, it was really uh, the tissues. And because we were using the coupon code tracking for the tissue papers or we were giving away fans and we were doing a lot of like local events. So you were rigorously tracking everything you did yes. and just doubling down on what worked. Mm -hmm. And that just happened to be the more physical stuff. Yeah, I think it really depends on the stages as well. I think by doing offline, it won't probably scale at a certain point in time. Mm -hmm. But in the beginning, uh, we have to be looking at chicken and egg strategy 
So keeping the good balance and the number of drivers that was coming into our network uh, really matched the strategy of doing a lot of things offline. Okay. So Uber was coming into the market pretty much the same time you guys were with a very different strategy. Mm-hmm. We're just a bit bigger than them, right? <laughs> in Japan, yeah, yeah. Globally, no. I'm <laughs> well, that's the funny thing is, in Japan, you were you were much bigger than they were. In in Osaka, so what percentage of the the market did you did you capture there? How many taxi companies did you bring on board? How many rides were you doing? I think we were able to capture about fifty um, taxi companies, totaling of. About 500 cabs, more than enough to create a case and do a lot of research and development and product customization to be able to bring it to other cities in Japan. So about what percentage of the taxi cabs in, in Osaka would that be? So there's about uh, 17,000 cabs. So it, it's not the majority yet, but based on the predecessor strategy, in the beginning of Osaka market entry was more of R&D, research and development, and really getting our product right. Proving the concept. Yes. And making sure our, you know, as how much we can do the product customization and what kind of speed to really expand it and scale it up. Okay. Well, actually, let's, let's get back to, to Uber for a moment because globally, Uber is so much bigger than Halo. Mm-hmm. But in Japan, it didn't work out that way. Halo was much bigger than Uber. When I look at it, I think it comes down to a basic approach to strategy but you were right in the middle of it, and you guys took very different paths. I want to hear your thoughts on their strategy versus the strategy you guys executed. Actually, we get compared often, but I believe we play a role in totally different space as Halo is focused on raising revenue for the drivers and creating efficiency and then allowing efficiency for our drivers to pick up customers and our customers getting safety, riding a licensed cab, and being able to use the app globally, whereas Uber is creating more of a network by enabling private hired vehicles, or they've also done um, carpool um, in Japan, in Fukuoka, where they were ordered by the Ministry of Land and Transport Infrastructure to be shut down because it wasn't uh, legalized. So I think it's very hard to compare the area of their focus is very different from our area of focus. That's true. From what I'm seeing, though, it seems like the most important difference was that Halo seemed to be making a very strong effort to play by the rules, mm-hmm. to, to make friends with all the local players, to go out of their way to obey all of the laws and understand them. And Uber was trying to be disruptive. Is that, is that a fair way of looking at it? Sure. Uh, some media has picked up us before when comparing the two companies. Halo is a constructive innovator, whereas Uber was a disruptive uh, innovator. The reason why I like Halo is because uh, the founders' DNA is, plays a big role in the company. Three of them out of the six are taxi drivers. Black Cab London, Black Cab drivers with a long history and their sole purpose of starting this company was really create efficiency and, of course, create more money for themselves because by creating efficiency, they will be driving more customers. So whichever cities we go into, we want to obey the law and make sure we respect the taxi association, 
I mean, our business was favored by the Ministry of Land and Transport um, Infrastructure in Japan. And I was always talking to the politicians and uh, government officials in order to really help grow this market because taxi uh, wages has been going down um, in Japan and revenue for taxi companies. In some of the taxi fleets, the average was about 33% in profit. It's very small margin. In terms of the overall economy, the prices are going up, but taxi prices are not going up that much. I mean, it's already might be ex- expensive to start off with. So I can see why that would be attractive because Halo is very much about improving the status quo. Making things work a little bit smoother, making a little bit more money. And that message is attractive in Japan in general.、Mm-hmm. I mean, we were able to raise about 30% of the revenue for taxi drivers、uh, by enabling it for people who started using、um, smartphones and then enabling、uh, Halo services. So I think that really helped and even get to spend more time with their grandchild because they have a smartphone now. <laughs> There we go. Excellent. So, after about a year, a year and a half, you had a functioning proof of concept. You had driver, you had a good number of taxi cabs, you had a good number of users. What happened? Because I know the plans to expand to Tokyo didn't quite materialize. So, so what happened? So, we're actually still in the process. The next deal、um, took over. Who's actually seconded from the conglomerate side, who is our investor.、Uh, while we are we're expanding to、uh, many of the, the larger fleets, we've had fleet A disliking fleet B. When we talk to fleet C, they would only come into Halo Network when we were able to convince fleet D. So, as mentioned,、um, it, it went in generations and generations. Of good friendship and bad friendship. So, you're dealing with a lot of very old rivalries and alliances? Yes, exactly. And our platform is very neutral. We want to work with everyone、um, in the market because we're a platform. The business will grow and we can only create efficiency once the majority of the taxi fleets, I mean, most of the、uh, taxis in Japan, the drivers exist to a fleet. Or a private、uh, taxi association. And so we would require the association or the fleet in order to sign up with us. And the individual driver cannot sign up directly. And so after thinking and going through the strategy and rethinking, I was not able to convince fleet A to work with fleet B or C and D and et cetera. We would have to kick out one by one for some of them and we won't be a neutral platform. So we changed the strategy. This was actually the first country to change the strategy in our business model. So we decided to switch to an OEM business model. Oh, okay. So the app will be probably a fleet A branded app powered by Halo because each fleet wants royalty, royal customers that they already have a network of. Our pitch was that we will provide our OEM to A, B, C, D. Or E to Z. That's for Japanese. But for foreign, foreigners that's traveling in Japan, we're currently about 20 million travelers for inbound right now. And by the Olympics in 2020, we should be having about 40 million.、Mm. So we were proposing about having a Halo app for foreigners 
and a global app because they could use it in like other countries like UK, etc. But when they come to Japan, we would be able to utilize all the powered by Halo taxi companies. But for the Japanese consumers, uh, they could maintain that brand loyalty. Brand loyalty. And it could be, you know, 10 apps that people might have to download. But this is. But that, that certainly makes sense from the taxi company's point of view. So I'm sure they saw the disintermediation that Uber did and they said, we don't want that to happen to us. So that's, that's pretty interesting. So has that strategy been successful? Uh, it's a work in progress right now. Okay. And, uh, the new CEO is actually working on it and I'm, Helping him uh, as an advisor of the company to right. so just keep the relationship with the um, taxi fleet. But he's the one running the show now. All right. And that's very much an only in Japan yes. play. If you look at the numbers, for example, in Tokyo, there's about 45,000 taxi. And the largest fleet only has about 4,000. So it's about 10% of the market share. And this 4,000 cab fleet and association, there's like four, five, five of them. Incredibly fragmented market. Yes. And the rest of them are all small, medium enterprises that could, that only has maybe 10 cars, 50, 30, 100. I really think that they need to work together in order to create more efficiency and uh, raise revenue because I'm sure there are a lot of misusage of driver's time trying to pick up customers that's 15 minutes away. Sure. And are you still targeting these very small companies as the Halo branded app? We're happy to talk to anyone who's interested. You know, we would require a certain amount of taxis. Otherwise, as mentioned, taxi driver might be forced to pick up a customer that's 15 minutes, 20 minutes away. And that won't be a good story for both sides for the consumer side as well as for the driver side. Exactly. Or we don't force drivers to pick them up, but in Japan, drivers, when they take the job, they tend to go actually like really far as part of the service where customers are king. Right, okay. Let me ask you something kind of uh, personal because you found yourself as the man in the middle between the global team at headquarters and the team on the ground in Japan particularly during a transition, how did you keep communications open? How did you make sure Japan did not become a black box? Well, I was constantly sharing Japan's data and stories of what's going on uh, with uh, HQ, the UK team. And my direct boss was actually the founding chairman. And I would have weekly calls or I call him whenever I need him. You know, my, my voice is to a certain level, I'm shouting from Japan. It's very different from when you're hanging within UK and from executive chairman of the company. And also I was asking like the chairman to actually come to Japan. He'd come here several times, meet the whole team, had time to really converse and have a direct channels as well as with uh, employees in London. And also I, when I do my periodical trips down to UK, I was taking uh, some of the employees as creating more of this uh, network uh, within the company. Okay, so there weren't any real problems getting uh, special resources for Japan or making these these changes that were unique to Japan. Uh, at times, of course, there there is because you know we're out there. Like when compared from working in UK, 
it's kind of hard to have a FaceTime and really remind them. Uh, I wouldn't know if they're having a bad day or not through maybe even a video conference because I wouldn't hear them chatting about something before my call. Of course, there was uh, difficulties at times, but then Halo was a really great startup where people was friendly and they really tried to help and they understand the needs and uh, differences. Oh, cool. So you just had a really good corporate culture going in. Yeah. I mean, the founders was really great. I mean, uh, they were really helpful. And for things like, sometimes I don't know who to go to, I asked the the three um, founding drivers. So they know every employee and they know who to ask and they'll be willing to help out. All right. Well, that's good to hear. Looking back on it now, now that it's it's done, Mm -hmm. What would you say is either the biggest mistake you made that you wish you could go back and take back or perhaps the biggest challenge you faced bringing this company in? Well, I think globally as well, uh, I think we should have raised more money. Like the example you mentioned a while ago, Uber raised billions of dollars and we were in millions well, you mean also, because I know globally, Halo's had some, some money troubles recently, but do you mean even the Japan JV should have been better capitalized? Yeah, I, I, I think so. I mean, I, I don't think there will be any issue of having too much money. <laughs> and actually, we're, we're doing okay now. I mean, we're owned by Daimler Chrysler, and uh, we're actually moving on to the you know, bigger next stage. It's looking very prospective. Okay. Let's see, before we wrap it up, what's the best advice you can give to a new country manager? It's very human-oriented business. I mean, all companies, it's all about the people that creates the culture of the company or the profits or that. So knowing the people in uh, the headquarters, knowing your regional colleagues, and really spending time communicating. And also, just because you know, you're in a different country, you shouldn't expect people to really understand the differences or what's going on with you. So you have to be over-communicating your current status. Even if it's very small details, and if it's in the same country, it's something maybe you don't have to share, but if it's a global company, I, I recommend that you over-communicate and tell all the small details, even, maybe they, even though they don't respond to you. So is that... Over-communicate to your boss and headquarters or over-communicate to your staff or just everyone? Just everyone. Your colleagues in HQ, colleagues in other countries, and, you know, your uh, colleagues in Japan. Excellent. Well, listen, is there anything that you want to talk about that I haven't asked you yet? Is there anything I should have asked you that I didn't? I I, I think my answer seemed to make it kind of uh, in some way negative in terms of the traditional industry taking a long time, but there's always a good portion of it. I mean, once you get the trust, it really, uh, the long-term business relationship can be there. And also this is a very big market to penetrate. I think it has a lot of chances for even other players to come in. And as long as you're committed to Japan, I, I think there's great opportunities to gain and really spend time uh, talking to the right people. I I think Japan is really opening up now. Mm -hmm. It's so much easier to either build a startup or to bring a company into Japan than it's ever been. I I think so too. Hey, listen, thank you so much for sitting down with me. I really appreciate it. 
Thank you too. If you're a startup thinking about Japan, you'll never really understand the opportunities here until you start to take a serious look at what's happening outside of Tokyo. Osaka, in particular, deserves your attention, and this is especially true if you and your team are involved in smart cities technologies. Now, Hankyu's GVH5 project is Osaka's startup central, and it's a great place for you to get started. They offer co-working space, bilingual business support, venture investment, and they're at the center of a great international startup and mentor community. Now, Hankyu's GVH5 in Osaka really deserves your attention. So pay them a visit at www.gvh-5.com/en. You'll be glad you did. And we're back. I absolutely loved Yo's low-tech approach to marketing Halo, handing out packs of tissue in front of train stations. I mean, after all, that's where the customers were, and it's the perfect illustration of how sometimes your best early moves involve doing things that don't scale. The critical thing, however, is that the team meticulously tracked the results of these marketing experiments, just as they would for an online campaign. He also underscored a point that I think is not well understood about the well-known tendency of Japanese companies to demand extensive customization. Sometimes that customization is really required, of course, but sometimes. The customer is just making sure that you are really committed to the relationship. I also think that Yo's description of the difficulties in getting the taxi companies to cooperate, or not even really cooperate, just to exist on the same platform, really illustrates the need for disruptive innovation. Halo managed to succeed to an extent by carefully balancing the needs of all stakeholders. Now, many of these so-called needs were clearly non-economic; some simply driven by pride or resentment, and they result in inefficiencies and higher costs for everyone. When these economic inefficiencies get high enough, a disruptive company can break through and rewrite the rules of the game. It seems that the taxi industry in Japan is not yet ripe for this kind of disruptive innovation. But there's a lot to learn from Halo's approach in Japan. If you've got a story of disruptive innovation, or with Uber and Halo, Ryo and I would love to hear from you. So come by disruptingjapan.com/show068, and let's talk about it. When you drop by, you'll find all the links and the sites that Ryo and I talked about, and much, much more in the resources section of the post. And you know. I'm going to be trying something new at Disrupting Japan: listener mail. I get a steady stream of inbound mail, and some of the questions, well, well, I think a lot of people would benefit from. So, if you've got a question, email me at tim at disruptingjapan.com, or better yet, send them via Twitter or on our Facebook page, and I'll read them on the show. It should be fun. And most of all, thanks for listening. And thank you for letting people interested in Japanese startups know about the show. I'm Tim Romero, and thanks for listening to Disrupting Japan.